This morning our passage is 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 through 25. 1 Samuel 28, verses 3 through 25. Like last week, we'll begin in a moment with the reading of this text. And I will remember this week to have everybody stand. And as we hear this passage, we will again have quite a few questions. To help us not get lost in the details, I'd like to offer a short four-part, four-point outline that I found in uh, Dale Ralph Davis's work. This will help us see how the last five chapters of this book are organized so we won't miss the point. So this is very important. Last week in chapter 27 through the second verses, verse of chapter 28 was David's dilemma with the Philistines, the enemies of God. Today in the rest of chapter 28 is Saul's dilemma without God and his word. And next will be chapters 29 and 30, which is David's deliverance. Actually, because of the Philistines, which is hard to believe, but God can use anyone and does. And lastly, in chapter 31, is Saul's death, as he and his sons are killed by the Philistines. So these are five chapters... 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, we're in 28, and you can look at them as first David's dilemma, and then Saul's dilemma, and then then David's deliverance, and then Saul's end, and that will help, believe me. As we look at the way these last five chapters flow, several important observations need to be made. Today's chapter does not explain if and how David gets out of his dilemma that we saw last week. Doesn't mention it. That explanation comes in chapters 29 and 30, and it is quite a story. Instead, today's chapter continues the book-long contrast between David and Saul. Again, emphasizing something that we see and have seen in his life. The hopeless misery in all of life for someone who has abandoned God. And after this contrast is drawn between a king-to-be who does know God and a king now who does not know God, the book ends with accounts of David's deliverance and Saul's end. So if you are able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel chapter 28, verses 3 through 25 from the English Standard Version. Now Samuel had died, and all Israel had mourned for him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had put the mediums and necromancers out of the land. The Philistines assembled and came and camped at Shunem 
And Saul gathered all Israel, and they encamped at Gilboa. When Saul saw the army of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. And when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him, either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. Then Saul said to his servants, Seek out for me a woman who is a medium, that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, Behold, there's a medium at Endor. So Saul disguised himself and put on other garments and went, he and two men with him. And they came to the woman by night. And he said, Divine for me a spirit and bring up for me whomever I shall name to you. The woman said to him, Surely you know what Saul has done, how he has cut off the mediums and the necromancers from the land. Why then are you laying a trap for my life to bring about my death? But Saul swore to her by the Lord, As the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. Then the woman said, Whom shall I bring up for you? He said, Bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with a loud voice. And the woman said to Saul, Why have you deceived me? You are Saul. The king said to her, Don't be afraid. What do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a God coming up out of the earth. He said to her, What is his appearance? And she said, An old man is coming up, and he's wrapped in a robe. And Saul knew that it was Samuel. And he bowed with his face to the ground and paid homage. Then Samuel said to Saul, Why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? Saul answered, I am in great distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more, either by prophets or by dreams. Therefore I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. And Samuel said, Why then do you ask me, since the Lord has turned from you and become your enemy? The Lord has done to you as he spoke by me, for the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor David. Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. Moreover, the Lord will give Israel also with you into the hand of the Philistines. And tomorrow you and your son shall be with me. The Lord will give the army of Israel also into the hand of the Philistines. Then Saul fell at once, full length on the ground, filled with fear because of the words of Samuel. And there was no strength in him, for he had eaten all, nothing all day and all night. And the woman came to Saul, and when she saw that he was terrified, she said to him, Behold, your servant has obeyed you. I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to what you've said to me. Now, therefore, you also obey your servant. Let me set a morsel of bread before you and eat that you may have strength when you go on your way. He refused and said, I will not eat. But his servants, together with the woman, urged him, and he listened to their words. So he arose from the earth and sat on the bed. Now the woman had a fattened calf in the house, 
and she quickly killed it and she took it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread of it and she put it before Saul and his servants and they ate and they rose and went away that night this is the word of the Lord thanks be to God you may be seated yes this is in the Bible we just read it the background information for this whole episode is in verses 3 and 4 Samuel had died information that we've already learned back in the first verse of chapter 25 but obviously the author knows that we need to remember this it's important to this story Next, we learn that Saul had tried to get rid of the mediums and the necromancers, which was in accord with Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 19, which prohibited the abominable practices of the nations Israel had been commanded to conquer in the Promised Land. These evil practices of the people of Canaan were one of the main reasons that God had judged them by giving the Israelites the land. What were these abominable practices? Well, listen closely to what the Lord tells his people in Deuteronomy 18, verses 10 through 14. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering. Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer, or a charmer, or a medium, or a necromancer, or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, you shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. But we find out in verse 7, once again, that Saul actually did what he himself had condemned. Now finally we learned that the Philistines had indeed gathered their forces for a huge war. As verse 1 said. Now the Philistine strategy seemed to be to gather a huge army from their territory, which is along the coast mainly, and go north in order to divide Israel apart and control the trade route through there. We learn that they gathered their forces here at Aphek, and they end up up here in Shunem, which is right on the slopes of the hill of Mora. Now you might realize that this is a huge plain the Jezreel Plain, the Valley of Jezreel, which includes some very flat territory spoken of in several places 
in Scripture. The Israelite army came to hear Gilboa, which is a mountain right here, and there was a spring right about there in Jezreel where they were camped. So the Philistines were here on the, on the foothills of these, this mountain range, and the Israelites were down here, and the plain went through this whole area. We're going to use this for the rest of this chapter as well as the story continues. But it's important to see. Now, what would this do? This would divide Israel from their northern tribes, and there's a trade route, obviously, to get through this rough territory right there. The plain was important because the Philistines had hundreds and hundreds of chariots. Guess how many Israel had? Zip. So that's kind of what was going on there. The medium that Saul seeks out is in Endor. Now think about this for a second. Saul is here. The Philistines are here. And if I could hold my hand still. And the medium is there. What does Saul have to go around to get to the medium? Hundreds of thousands of soldiers. Important point. Okay. The focus upon David and his predicament from chapter 27 has been abruptly paused. We're just left like this. Why? We need to ask these questions. Why? It's order in order to change the focus because we're all worried about David at the end of chapter 27. It's inserted here, something else that is more important to consider. And that may be hard to understand, but I'll try to explain it. The medium of Endor in verses 5 through 25 is what the rest of this chapter is really all about. And what we've seen is that Saul is absolutely terrified as he sees this huge Philistine army. This is not a raiding party anymore. This is everybody, every, every weapon that the Philistines have. And when he inquired of the Lord in his terror, we read that the Lord did not answer in verse 6. Now, we should have a pretty good reason why, if you've been here during our studies in 1 Samuel already. But we hear the reason again later. After not hearing an answer from God, Saul wrongly turned to what he had rightly prohibited. In verse 7. And it's interesting that Saul's men had no trouble at all finding someone who had supposedly been removed from the land earlier. Did you notice that? I need a medium. Poof, his men come in. I know where one is. He desperately, this is desperation we're seeing. He desperately wanted to summon someone from the dead who could do what? 
tell him what to do. So Saul snuck into Endor in disguise, no royal garments here, and in the dark, in verse 8, and in the dark is a theme, in case you haven't noticed. Saul is in darkness, the greatest darkness that there is. And he will stay there. Endor, remember, was on the other side of the Philistine camp. So this shows how desperate he is. He gets right to the point with the medium. In the Holman Christian Study Bible, we have this translation of the second part of verse 8. Consult a spirit for me. Bring up for me the one I tell you. And verse 9 shows us that the woman immediately was suspicious of a setup. But Saul swore that it wasn't. In verse 10. He swears an oath immediately of immunity for her. Get this. In the Lord's name. By the Lord's life. As he seeks help from a source that God condemns, the medium. The woman consents, barely. You need to consider this. Everyone in her trade, many probably had been removed from the land or gotten rid of in other ways. So she had reason to believe this was a setup. Governments have been known to do such. But she does. And what does she do at the sight of Samuel coming up? She screams. And then she fully recognizes who Saul is in verses 11 and 12. And when Saul knew that it was Samuel, he bowed his face to the ground and paid homage. But we could also say, It's a very self-serving gesture. He wants to know what to do, and he is determined to use any means available or possible in order to do so, no matter whether it's been condemned or not. Now, I know everyone has questions. Wasn't Israel forbidden to do this? Of course as we've seen in Deuteronomy 18 and Leviticus 19. It's out-and-out disobedience. The next question you might be asking is, well, was this a real episode, or was it fake? The Lord forbids using these practices not because they do not work, but because they are wicked and evil. This is not an apparition then how do we explain necromancy? Great word, huh? Ever heard it? It's not great when you realize what it is. And also, just want to mention that these things that are condemned are becoming the fashion and the thing to do in our day, in our culture, and in our society. When I was a kid, 
The only thing I can remember anybody even coming close to this was Ouija boards. Now do you see why? And now that's like child's play. Nobody even talks about it. Half of movies and TV are about, are about the black arts. That tells you something about where we are. Now, necromancy means the foretelling of the future through communication with spirits of the dead. Pretty cut and dry. There is really no way to explain it except to say that for his own reasons, by God's power and permission, God permitted Samuel to come up in order to speak his word of truth and doom to Saul by an evil means that Saul wanted to have happen. It's almost the idea, okay, I'll give you what you want, and you're not going to like it. You're going to hear exactly what I've told you before. And God has done this before. In fact, Saul himself was given to the people of Israel because he was the kind of man that they wanted as a king, remember? The Reformation Study Bible has one of the most concise answers anywhere to this question of how do we explain it and was this a real episode or fake? Probably this is Samuel himself and not merely an apparition. The consternation of the medium shows that the figure is something outside her usual experience of magical arts. She freaked out when Samuel came up. This was not by her power or summoning, is the point. The figure is simply called Samuel, and what the figure says is consistent with Samuel's pronouncements when he was alive on earth, especially in chapter 15, verses 26 and 28. Same exact words. For some reason that we do not know, really, the Lord allows Samuel to visit Saul. And it's clear from the medium's reaction, get this, that she cannot compel him to appear. This is by God's power and for his reasons that we do not have privy to. But still then, we ask, doesn't this example of an actual case of necromancy then open the way for justifying this kind of practice of consulting the dead? Absolutely not. If anything, this is the example that shows some of why the practice is condemned. Look at Saul. It has only sent him into deeper darkness, incapacitating and destroying him. And remember, Scripture is clear. This is not a legitimate practice because it is condemned in Scripture and done by a king who should know better, but who is a king with no genuine faith in the Lord. I hope that clears some of them up. There's probably a million more, but we need to go on. This is not a sermon to detail the magical dark arts. No way, never. Now, what should we learn from this strange and yet very sad account? 
because that's what this is. There's at least three lessons. The first lesson that we can draw from all this is that there's nothing more miserable than placing yourself as far away from knowing God as possible. Nothing more miserable than that. And that's exactly what Saul has done and is therefore Saul's great dilemma. His great dilemma is he is without God and his word. I am in distress, for the Philistines are warring against me, and God has turned away from me and answers me no more. Either by the prophets or by dreams, by the urine. Therefore, I have summoned you to tell me what I shall do. Saul realizes that the Philistines and God are in the same category, opposed to him, his enemies. I think it's important right here to note that when Saul asked the Lord what to do, all Saul really wants is what? He, all he really wants is for God to deliver him out of this great trouble that he's in. He still, as he has consistently done his whole life, does not want God himself. In other words, Saul has never desired to truly know the Lord. And worship the Lord. And serve the Lord. He's only interested and only been interested in getting from God what he thinks he deserves from God. Saul wants what he wants on his own terms. And is not interested in the Lord's terms. Samuel reminds Saul in verses 16 and 17 that the Lord is carrying out what Samuel had previously declared. That the Lord is tearing the kingdom from Saul and giving it to his neighbor. Except here in this passage, that neighbor is named David. We all knew it was David, but here he says it. Why? Why is the Lord tearing the kingdom? Saul's been told this multiple times before as well. But the answer is in verse 18, which looks back to the events of chapter 15 again. Because you, Saul, did not obey the voice of the Lord and did not carry out his fierce wrath against Amalek, therefore the Lord has done this thing to you this day. In other words, you did not listen to the Lord. And you prove that by, that by not doing what God said to do. Saul had edited the Lord's command to his own and his people's preferences. He viewed what he did as wise accommodation. But Samuel called it rebellion. Saul thought what he did was prudent. 
sparing lives, getting his people together. But Samuel saw it as stubborn and out-and-out defiance of the Lord God Almighty. This is the text exclamation for God's refusal to answer Saul. We're seeing a king who does not want any part of God himself. And we're seeing that king reap the results of his hardened heart. The second lesson that we see and we can draw from all this is don't forget the context here especially the surrounding chapters which detail David's dilemma. David was caught between a rock and a hard place because he had gotten away from Saul by running off to the Philistines. The deceit and marauding paid big dividends for a while for him and his men, but David was so successful in convincing the Philistine king that Saul and he, David, were bitter enemies, and therefore David was excluded from Israel's kingdom and could be what? The Philistine king's own personal mercenary force. That the Philistines then demanded David and his men fight with him in the impending war with Israel. That's how he left it. This is... David between a rock and a hard place. His sin, his not trusting the Lord, his running to the enemy to be sheltered from Saul is now coming back on his head. Chapter 28 began with the seeming disaster right here, right on the horizon. David fighting with the Philistines against his own people. This would forever brand him as a traitor and imperil his future reign on the throne of Israel. This is serious. So the text left us hanging right there with, what will David do? How can he get out of this? And inserted right there in this hair-raising story, we are suddenly presented with Saul's dilemma. Why? The author wants us to put David's dilemma and Saul's dilemma side by side and look closely at them. It's like a great television show being interrupted with a very real, especially around here, tornado warning. In fact, a tornado is on the ground warning. You don't want to miss the end of the show, especially if it's a murder mystery. You can't stand it. You're yelling at Doppler, whoever, and that other guy, and the other guy, and the other guy. Okay, I know where it is. I know it's coming toward my house, but I want to know how this ends. We all feel that way, usually, unless it's, you know, two or three blocks away. We want to disregard it even if our life is in danger. We don't like this interruption, but that's what we're looking at here. The author of 1 Samuel is saying, don't worry so much about David right now. You need to see and must see something far more critical. The question is, are we? I interrupt this narrative to tell you that there is something far worse than being caught among the Philistines. And that is being cut off from all communication with the Lord God Almighty. 
Like Saul, nothing is so utterly miserable than finding in the hour of your greatest need that you had long ago placed yourself beyond the sound of God's voice and that now you must face this impossible situation knowing that really you are totally alone. Not wanting to really give your life to the Lord is what you really wanted, Saul. So here we are. Doesn't this put David's dilemma in perspective then? If we understand how important chapter 28 is. His trial is still huge, but it doesn't seem quite as hopeless as before, does it? The hope lies in the fact that we know who David belongs to. And what the Lord has promised. Saul, on the other hand, has never given himself to the one, and remember, to the one that he knows is God. He's around him all the time. He's seen him work. He's the king over the people that worship this God. He's around him. He's seen his power. He knows the history, and yet he will have nothing to do with him. Personally, over his own heart. So, in fact, Saul's heart is steadily becoming more and more hardened as he has refused to listen to and obey God. He is without the word of God. Your burdens, brothers and sisters in the Lord, you who know the Lord Jesus Christ, and you serve him and you worship him, your burdens appear lighter when seen in this proper context. I don't mean that your burdens go away or they're less painful or less agonizing or any less real, but there is an important lesson again in our passage to speak to yourself what you know is true about God. And standing up to sing, Behold your God, sums up this whole message. When we know how great and mighty and majestic He is, everything that hurts us dims in comparison. It's put in a different context. That's the message for Christians down through the ages. Because this helps us see our circumstances in more of the proper context. But you see, our passage says there is something far worse. This isn't just some weird psychology trick. Cry out to God with your pain and your trials. You belong to Him, He is yours. But also hang on to the right perspective, the right context for your life. The believer is not alone. There is nothing worse than someone realizing that they have made themselves alone, isolated against everything and everyone. 
it's no accident that Sunday school lesson that we heard that pilgrim faced, Christian faced with hopeful, was known as the darkness of the soul. Well, there's a third lesson here, and it's a warning. Spiritual desperation can be misdirected. Saul's need, as we've said in several other ways, was really not information about what to do. That was not his greatest need. Yeah, it was terrifying him in the circumstances. Saul's real need was communion with the Lord that he really did know was there. He just didn't want to really know him and bow to him. One commentator explains, Saul wanted the results of God's favor more than he wanted God's favor. Did you catch that? Saul wanted the results of God's favor more than he wanted God's favor. We know that in the grace of giving his son to us. Now, we need to, we need to go on a, on a short tangent to deal with some things that are cooking in all of our hearts here. Some genuine believers are convinced that they are in Saul's shoes, that they are cut off from God's presence, that they may be doomed to his silence, forever under his frown. And one can understand why believers in Jesus might draw such conclusions. God's presence does sometimes seem distant. And if you've known that, and you think, I'm alone, that's wrong right off the bat. Most Christians know this from something, some way. Sometimes he has or does seem maybe to cast them off, these true believers. Sometimes God leaves us in our affliction for so long that we are tempted to say that he has forsaken us. And the Bible acknowledges that such conditions can prevail in the lives of God's flock. Some of the most beautiful and the most glorious hymns we sing were written by a man named William Cooper, who knew this in various periods of his own life. I say that to go on. The Bible recognizes that someone can be objectively forsaken by God, really and truly, like Saul was, and that others can seem to be forsaken or fear that they have been. How can we tell them apart? Are there any clues to help us distinguish one situation from another? Yes, there are. One is Psalm 13, first couple of verses, which happens to be a psalm of David. Now, knowing the peril he's in, listen. Psalm 13, verse 1. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? 
Can you hear his cry? How long will you hide your face from me? Notice what the psalmist David does when he thinks the Lord has forgotten him. Does he turn to mediums or necromancers or horoscopes or the psychology page or the newspaper or to frills and thrills to get his mind off God? No. After this how much longer, he prays in verse 3, Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. What does that tell us? What is happening when believers are terrified at God's seeming absence? They instinctively turn to the God they think has forsaken them. That is not stupidity. That is not shallow. This is unreal when you realize what you've just said. When believers are terrified at God's seeming absence, they instinctively turn to the God they think has forsaken them. And then they go on having dealings with this God, crying to this God to answer because they have nowhere else to go. And they know that. But they know He is the answer. So they keep clinging to Him and find out later that he's holding on to them. Eventually, they see that the clearest evidence that God has not turned away from them is that even in his absence, seeming absence, they keep turning to the God who seems to have turned from them. If that's not a pastoral passage right there, I do not know what is. And I know this to be true. And so do you, if you know him. In these kind of situations, the believer is concerned with God's absence rather than with a lack of insight for his or her current problem. You see the difference? Let me read that again. In these kind of situations, the believer is concerned with God's absence rather than with a lack of insight for your current problem. Others may be more concerned with guidance than with knowing the guide. And that's what Saul was. He did not belong to the Lord. He had no genuine faith. He just wanted... God, to get him out of this mess, he did not want to bow himself and get to know this great God. So the lesson again, spiritual desperation can be misdirected. There's a lot to learn here, isn't there? And there's a whole lot of nuance to each of these lessons. There is nothing more miserable than placing yourself as far away from knowing God as possible. Don't forget the context because there is something far worse. And that's not knowing God and being one of his children. Every father in here knows the pain, probably, 
of seeing a child going through something incredible and you are desperate for them to cry out to you. And the question is, if God truly is our Father who has bought us with the price of His own Son, should we not cry out to Him with anything and everything that we are facing? Yes! He understands. In fact, He has been there. Derek Thomas alluded to it in that video this morning. Jesus Christ went through the darkness of his own soul as he paid for our sin and as God poured out the wrath for us upon him. No one knows it better. And the third lesson Spiritual desperation can be misdirected. Which would you rather have? A faith that is real? One where you know that you will get to know the glorious joy of coming into fellowship and growing with the Lord day by day for the rest of your life, knowing that there may be really rough times ahead? knowing that if you are alive now, most probably you will face death itself? Where do you want your hope to go then? Why wait? Cry out to him now. We do not live in a fake, shallow religion where we try to put on a face of righteousness. We have Christ's righteousness. We can run to him. That's the best explanation I've ever heard. We run to him. We cry out to him. We let him hold us in his truth, by his word, knowing that he has proved his love and care for us as we realize he gave his own son in our place to bring us into his presence as a member of his family. So, end of Saul's dilemma. Now we can look forward to how God delivers David. It's going to take two chapters. Talk about complex. And then we see the end of Saul. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we come humbled this morning as we realize how great you are and how much of a short-sightedness we have. We, We can't look beyond the end of our own nose. We get so consumed with just right here and now, and we know that you care about the right here and now. But we know there are other realities that are just as true. In fact, they give perspective and show what's really going on as we learn to look beyond that to who you are, to the truths that you give us about Christ and our identity in him and who we are in him 
and we see this tragic story, and we see the incredible darkness that Saul was now confined to. He knows that he will die the next day or so in battle. And he's got to live with that. Those hours must have seemed like eternity. And we know David had done something foolish, and, and yet his heart is after yours that he will confront his sin often and repent and confess and find his hope and peace and his security in the future Messiah that he believes will come for him. Lord, may we learn from this chapter. May we know and feel the freedom that you give us to cry out to you to find out how faithful and good you are to find out how your purposes are beyond our immediate fears so that we can enjoy the fellowship of Christ together and worship you. And we pray that you would allow us to worship you here in this country of ours for the rest of our lives in freedom. And we pray for the ability to do that humbly and with reverence and with great, great joy. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please stand for our benediction? From Ephesians chapter 6. Peace be to you in love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Amen. You're dismissed.